Hi everyone and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark number 42 with Teddy Vallée, the founder and CIO of Pavallé Global. So Teddy's a well-known macro thinker, um, I think especially for like a lot of his leading indicators and how they affect his different frameworks. Uh, and at Pavallé they trade all assets, so it's a, a real hedge fund, uh, almost in some ways kind of a, how hedge funds used to be. Um, and those that are keen listeners will remember we had Pavele's head of research, uh, Eric, on um, a couple of months ago. Uh, but with Teddy today, we're going to talk about pretty much macro in general. Uh, I'm sure we're going to touch on the election. So for those that are going to get offended, just stop listening now. Um, we're going to talk about, I'm sure, COVID and a hell of a lot more. Um, as always, it's not investment advice. Please do your own research. Teddy, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So why don't we start with a quick intro to yourself and to Pavali? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I founded Pavali about uh, two years ago um, after working at two buy-side firms in uh, New York City. Uh, originally started off on the equity side of things and then gravitated toward the macro. The macro always made much more sense to me. Um, and I'm much more of a trader at heart um, and focusing on you know, shorter term moves, call it one to three months and distributions um, in the macro sphere. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're looking at effectively everything. So single, single stock equities, uh, currencies, bonds, commodities, now cryptocurrency. So um, we've been, you know, chugging along over the past two years here, um, putting together, building out the, the macro shop and uh, pretty excited about the next call it three to five years because I think macro, even though it's been a horrible, horrible strategy for the past, even for the past decade, I think it's underperformed the S&P in nine out of the last 10 years and the one year that it did outperform, it was actually down. Um, I think the next 10 years are going to be very, very positive for macro. Um, so we're pretty excited about it and some of the, the, the bigger trends that, that we're seeing. So macro is back. I've heard a few people say that. So. Macro's back. I think it, we, we actually, that's actually our. Got to put a baby in there, right? Trademark that. But yeah, back. exactly. Put a macro's back. It's on the, it's on the, the, the main website and all, all of our marketing material. Um, so uh, yeah, and I think it's, it's just an incredible, you know, the past 10 years, you basically just, you know, all you had to do is buy, buy an equity and hold it. Um, and you've seen just an unbelievable prol proliferation of, of passive investing and now you know there's more ETFs than there actually are of equities so I think that actually reverses over the next 10 years um, and we have a lot of data that sort of provides that backs up this view which we can get into but um, from, a, from a macro and active macro guys perspective I think the opportunity over the next short both short and medium and long term are, is phenomenal, are phenomenal. All right well let's get into that later why don't we start with I mean, 2020 has been a pretty interesting year, and that's using the British meaning of the word interesting. Um, <coughs> and, uh, and we're nearing the end of the year. We've got a, a small election next week. Uh, we've got COVID ramping again in US and Europe. Um, there's just tons of stuff going on. So kind of what are the key dynamics right now? What, what are the key thoughts you're having? Yeah, I think one of the main things that we're really focused on right now is we can see, you know, a lot of our processes, like you mentioned, these leading indicators, and we can see a cyclical recovery that's that's going to manifest in 2021. Um, 
and it's already you could sort of see it coming through on some of the the recent numbers but it's it's very cloudy and difficult to to fully gauge given the effects of covid and reopenings and you know inventory stockings restocking um so you know one of the things that we're really focused on right now is this liquidity backdrop now call it through the beginning of next year even though you have likely cyclical beginning of a cyclical recovery starting uh, end of q4 beginning of q1 there's a very very negative liquidity backdrop and what i mean by that is basically dollars available to flow into risk assets um moves decisively lower um now this is very counterintuitive to basically nearly every person on the planet that's like oh the federal reserve is you know so loose right now there's so much money but you know the work that we've done what's happening is all of these stimulus programs are actually very negative for liquidity because we have to finance it via the treasury we have to go out we have to issue those bonds and by issuing those bonds that pulls capital out of the system so there's only so many dollars today and if we need call it a trillion dollars um of issuance we need to find those dollars somewhere so they need to be sold uh via other assets come out of cash piles but the process itself is very very negative uh, on the liquidity backdrop and the fed is currently not buying enough bonds to basically fill that hole so we've put together a a, a leading indicator of this dynamic that leads call it the dollar by 120 days and we're just coming into the beginning of this period where liquidity backdrop because of all of these stimulus programs and the amount of issuance is, is very negative. So I think, so then take a step back with that premise and you say, okay, how is everyone positioned? How is everyone looking at the world right now? Well, the clear, it's, it's completely clear that Joe Biden is going to sweep based on positioning, based on, um, call it sell side sentiment, based on, you know, um, polls, based on uh, spread betting. Um, so that's coming clearly coming through in, in, in in how participants are positioned in the market. So, you know, dollar shorts are at max highs, uh, bond shorts are at max lows are meeting like the, the most short they've been on bonds. Um, commodities or cyclical sort of reflation trades are all you know, as a percentage of open interest back at levels that are uh, historical extremes. So if you aggregate all of that right now, about 30, it's about 30% of open interest is looking for this reflation trade. Um, so I, to me, it seems that when everyone's on the same side of the boat, um, they're typically wrong and, you know, call it the majority of time that they're wrong. And, and, and I look at these liquidity models that we've been building and I look at positioning and I sort of see a scenario where all of that gets unwound, which then creates a very attractive entry into um emerging markets uh, emerging market bond emerging market equities emerging market bonds uh, commodities commodity equities um more actual true cyclical reflation trades for 2021 call it q1 i'm not exactly sure of the timing but beginning of next year um so we'll you know rely on the technicals for that but to, to me it seems right now the higher probability is that this gets washed out which then creates a clean set of positioning for um, a more, a more a longer term trade um, on, on the cyclical side of things next year. And that also means that rates likely back up as we progress through um, 
through next year. Uh, what, you think rates at the short end as well or much more at the long end? No, I think rates, I think rates, rates at the short end are going to have a very difficult time for, or not a difficult time, they're not going to go anywhere for a while. Um, I think likely more on the long end. Um, but let me also just mention uh, this, this dynamic with the dollar that I'm speaking about. The whole, the whole reason that we have, or the primary reason that we see that, that equities have had such a significant run outside of the liquidity backdrop being very positive, or, although it's sort of connected, is the dollar's moved significantly lower. And as the dollar's moved significantly lower, break-evens have, have really shot back up to levels that they were pre-COVID. At the same time, nominal rates haven't moved at all. So real rates uh, have been significantly um, floor, basically floored. And if you look at the correlation between real rates and mul equity multiples, it's now uh, 90%, so, which is the highest in history. So the whole move in the equity market has primarily been, one, it's been 100% on multiple expansion. It's been over 100% on multiple expansion for the S&P almost roughly hundred um, percent for the, for the tech sectors. So, you know, that's $3.3 trillion of market cap that's that the tech sectors gain purely on multiple expansion, which is primarily a result of the dollar going lower and real rates as well going lower. So, you know, the every, so I talked a little bit about position before, if you think about position in the equity market right now, 31% of, um, of the market cap of the S&P is tech. If you add in more of the deflationary and sort of no growth sectors, utilities, staples, healthcare, that grows to 61%. So it's $24.4 trillion of, I'm sorry, 69%. $24.4 trillion of capital currently allocated in the equity markets for either um, no, basically no pickup in, in inflation or effectively deflation, which we just see as a very low probability. So right now you have a, an extreme positioning in the equity markets that's benefited from the lower dollar that also that we see the probability is paying a dollar higher, which would sort of unravel that positioning in the equity market. So tech is, we've, we're now the, probably the most negative we've been on tech, um, I think ever. Uh, I just think the, the distribution of outcomes looking forward is, you know, one, either we have a cyclical recovery and during a cyclical recovery, you're going to have interest rates back up higher, which means real rates are likely going to go higher given the monster gap between break-evens and nominals, um, which as I mentioned is going to affect equity multiples as it's been the primary driver behind their, their recent, recent appreciation. Um, or if you don't have a cyclical pickup and you have a big move in the dollar, break-evens are going to go lower and real rates again will go higher, um, which causes, you know, again, pressure on, on, on technology and the multiples. The, the, only, the other scenario is a cyclical recovery with yield curve control, but under the, which would benefit every sector. But under that scenario, I, I still think tech underperforms on a relative basis because why would you want to own tech when you have actual growth and the earnings profiles of a lot of these cyclical companies are picking up. Uh, I think the one, the sector to own during, under that scenario is clearly, you know, gold miners, silver miners, precious metals space, if that does manifest. So I think tech relative to the market um, and on an absolute basis is going to have a very, very difficult time 
over the longer term, call it 12 months uh, from here over the next 12 months. While some of the cyclical companies, while they might have some, some problems in the short term, are likely going to do significantly better over 12 to 18 months. Okay, so, so let's say USD goes into triple figures, as in the DXY. Um, that, a lot of people think that will pretty much be a wrecking ball for a lot of, well, pretty much all risk assets. Um, you know, maybe the one thing that might perform quite well is something like long duration bonds. But, but like, do you see any, there's so much weird stuff going on. Do you see anything that might be kind of decoupling from that kind of basic view? Um, you know, for example, you know, some people have talked about, well, in 19, the dollar got stronger and actually gold went up, um, you know, which isn't necessarily like a normal correlation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there's definitely been a, a complete breakdown in a lot of a lot of correlations. I think gold. Okay, so if you have if you have the dollar going up and real rates going down, I think both of both the dollar and gold could do well, which I assume probably happened in that period that you mentioned. Um, but you know, so I don't know if I'd see the dollar in in triple figures would be would be would be sort of a widow maker for a lot of the recent trades that we've that have done well um i don't know if i see it going that high that's possible um i'm sort of seeing more of like a slow grind higher um no but but triple figures is definitely possible now you know i think if it's from a a trading perspective i think if it breaks the most recent low then you have to reevaluate the thesis and sort of think about um the economic backdrop and and you know, completely willing to and able to do that, um, which would you know, not necessarily correlate with a lot of the models that we're looking at currently. But at the same time, um, you sort of have to just you know, respect the price action. So everything I just said could completely is contingent on the dollar you know not breaking the most recent low. Um, I think that if the dollar does that make that move higher though, that you're going to have a very difficult time with precious metal space um and you're likely not going to see a decoupling um with with the dollar primarily because of break-evens and break-evens will will go lower if the dollar makes this move which given where nominals are will cause real rates to to rise so another trade that you know i've been talking about that i'm also pretty interested in is um or an idea i'll call it um is 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 shorting um tips or looking for real rates to go higher because you you could effectively win under multiple different scenarios, um, which are likely to, 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 to play out. Um, so the majority of those scenarios are likely to play out over the next 12 months. Okay. And how would you, I mean, you mentioned before cryptocurrencies. So, I mean, when we, let's simplify it maybe to Bitcoin, but um, I mean, it's had a pretty, well, I think it's the best performing macro asset of the year. It's up roughly hundred percent. Um, I said that on Twitter and someone quite rightly told me it's not the best performing asset because some individual stocks have gone up more, which is absolutely true. Um, but if we say it's an asset class in itself, um, I mean, it's, it, it has its own kind of four-year cycle, which some of that's based upon you know, when, when the halving happens and the minor rewards halve. And, and obviously that happened in May this year. And then in the past, it tends to have seen like a real bull run, like maybe nine months, 12 months after that's happened. Um, but in the past, it's kind of just ignored what was happening with things like the dollar because it just wasn't a big enough thing. 
Um, and I think it was just, you know, very much doing whatever it wanted. I mean, I'm talking back like four and eight years ago. Um, but that seems to have changed a bit now. It seems to be more of a macro instrument than it was. Um, what's your kind of view on that in general? Also? Yeah, I think, well, on the space in Bitcoin in general, I'm very, very bullish, very bullish long term. Um, I'm a little worried about it short term because of these liquidity issues that I was just mentioning, which crypto is, is historically um, correlated with. Uh, one of the things that we're working on right now is basically looking at a breadth of crypto uh, relative to this liquidity indicator. So, you know, Bitcoin has had a, a very large run recently, but not necessarily some of the other cryptos are not at the same level um, that Bitcoin is or would apply, um, you know, call it 60, 80 days ago, uh, you know, above the recent high, while a lot of these other currencies are not necessarily there. But I think crypto long term is very attractive. Short term could be. Um, could be a little bit of a problem. Um, I think the, the PayPal news was very, very positive for uh, being able to purchase, you know, crypto is positive for uh, Bitcoin uh, and why we saw some of the most recent price action. Um, but from a, a, a longer term standpoint, the, uh, the, 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 the macro backdrop for the asset class is phenomenal because I think, we will likely see negative to on a, on a real basis, negative returns for us equities, negative returns for, and we have five models that show that forward returns for us equities are very likely very poor, um, which we can now sort of back up and think about via positioning, which is, you know, 70% of roughly 70% of the whole us equity market does not do well under a reflation scenario or deflation scenario. Um, given it's tied to uh, real rates. Um, so, you know, I can paint a pretty decent backdrop for negative to, to flat to negative real returns for both stocks and bonds, which means, look, we have to, you have to find somewhere to put your money. One is going to be emerging markets, which I think are going to do very well over the next call it three to five years. But two, um, you know, why wouldn't you, Right now, Bitcoin, for example, is only 14 basis points of the global stock and bond market. So if you're looking for, if you operated on the assumption that the new financial paradigm, which I think is very, very liquidity negative, but potentially growth positive. So, you know, if we have con continued fiscal stimulus, you know, cash handouts, that is positive for commodities and growth, but negative for liquidity. So we're pulling the capital out of the financial markets via treasury issuance and using that capital to give to consumers to therefore go spend. So it creates a pretty positive feedback loop between growth and liquidity, which means that uh, things that, that hold their value uh, as we print this, this capital, um, should should do extremely well and bitcoin being such a small percentage of total assets and a, and a store of value with incredible intellectual um capital behind it is likely a is a is an area that people are clearly gravitating towards so you know it, it is likely very very early in the in the innings here um for the space itself but i think just the macro backdrop and millennials just love it right um, that, that and are going to inherit a significant significant amount of money over the next ten years, and 
like we've seen their most recent trading styles they don't really care what it what like what it what the valuation is all this other you know all this other stuff they're buying it because they think it's going to go up and they like it and they understand it um so you have a, a tremendous macro tailwind behind the space um that over the long term is likely going to be very positive especially with these this sort of new monetary regime that we're that we're shifting in yeah no, i agree with that and it's it's very interesting because i mean we've had i mean the paypal news was i mean undoubtedly bullish i mean it's kind of a bit difficult to look at it any other way um, and then of course stuff like microstrategy recently square and of course jack dorsey's been very pro bitcoin for a long time um but you know you're uh, and there's a whole bunch of other like there's a whole bunch of stuff happening at once which is it's almost like if if all that stuff was happening um and we had like a retail mania at the same time would be easily at all-time highs but but there's not that retail mania like the google search trends for bitcoin are absolutely going nowhere at the moment um and you know they mm -hmm. spiked a lot at the end of 17. um so it's actually very interesting suggested is uh that yes that the institutions are coming um you know fidelity has put a huge amount of work into this and now especially with the OCC news that you can, um, banks can custody Bitcoin. So, and then when PayPal, with their news, I, I can't see if you're an executive at a bank, how you're not, you've got to have some strategy. I mean, boards are going to be asking. So that'll mean it's probably going to dump tomorrow because everything's far too bullish, but, uh, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it has had a huge run. So you know what, if it pulled back a couple of thousand bucks, that's fine. I mean, it's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Um, but, um, the um, you know the fear and greed index on it is is not massively over the top. It's not like at ninety eight percent greed. I think it was in the seventies. So I think it's an interesting one. I like the millennials thing because maybe the only way boomers money gets into Bitcoin is ultimately via inheritance. So, um, but but then that will right, happen. Exactly. For, but that will happen over twenty to thirty years. Like that's a just a long slow drip, which uh, is is great um, because you know you don't you. Know, I would love to see Bitcoin continue to trend down in volatility. Uh, I mean, it has over time, but it still has these absolutely gigantic spikes. Um, and, and you don't know when it has the spike if the price has gone up or down. It, it acts quite differently to a lot of other asset classes. So, um, but, yeah, it's got a, it sort of has mind of its own. It goes, you know, like will we'll correlate with the S and P, and then all of a sudden, you know, the past few days, like you were mentioning, it, it's going completely the other way. One thing that we found is that it does sort of, it does uh, correlate with one of our uh, liquidity models, not necessarily all of them, um, but it also correlates with economic growth, um, which is sort of interesting. So during, you know, global growth up cycles is typically when you see, this is longer term correlation, not necessarily day to day stuff, but during global growth upturns, you see that's when Bitcoin has the majority of its gains where global growth downturns it, it's basically flat so if you can think about owning it or owning more of it during these global growth up cycles when liquidity is typically positive um those are those are really the what we found the the best times to to be in the asset class um or juice up the asset class per se um but you know i think it just has an incredible incredible macro tailwind over a long period of time now getting from there to here to there is going to be 
you know, uh, a, a fun ride and interesting ride and potentially painful at times ride. Oh, it will be painful at times. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, Bitcoin has every meme in the world, right? So it's, um, it's for, for those who don't like drawdowns, don't invest much. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, because it's not as bad as it used to be. I remember the days it could be 90% down in a day. Um, which is pretty much like the German stock market in 1945 or six or so. Um, but, um, you know, but it actually trades quite technically. So um, um, primarily because I think there's a lot of people who learn technical analysis because of cryptocurrencies and then they actually um, mm. some degree move the market, although more institutional now. So. Um, okay, cool. So we well, kind of mentioned the election briefly. So, I mean, <laughs> The new meme online, of course, is people that believe data and, and, and polling um, and those who are just like, well, 2016 is going to repeat and Trump's going to win. And we don't really know. Um, but I think you and I are both generally data-driven people. Um, and it's, you know, the data doesn't seem to be moving in a way it did four years ago, i.e. two weeks before you had the Comey email or the letter and, um, and, and the polls did start to move. Um, so have you been thinking through, you know, it is important. It may or may not be important to the markets, um, but, but have you been thinking through it? Like, have you been thinking through individual trades or yeah. different scenarios or, or what? Yeah, I think the way we've been sort of thinking about it and trying to position for it is thinking about the distribution of outcomes from all the different scenarios and what that mean and, and basically what that means for different markets um, and where's the overlap between those two. So for example, if Trump loses, um, then you're likely not going to have stimulus for the be until the beginning of next year. Um, uh, so let's say Biden has a clean sweep. If the clearest outcome and clearest trade is if Biden wins with a clean sweep, then that's very, uh, that's going to be dollar negative. Um, it's going to be very reflationary. Um, but at the same time, I think people are going to then think about the taxes, uh, both for corporates and individuals, which then will likely weigh on the market. So under that scenario, uh, I think real rates would likely go much higher as nominals back up. So bonds get hit. Um, now, if Trump wins and um, say Trump wins and you have a split Congress, you're not going to likely not going to have a, it's going to be difficult to, to put through um, a decent stimulus bill. And the same thing if Biden went to split Congress, um, given the, polit the political posturing and some of you know, the tactics that we saw under the Obama years, um, which means that all the reflation trades that have currently been put on are likely unwind. So under that scenario, I think break-evens likely trade significantly lower, which means real rates go up. So, that is a clear overlap um, between the, you know, these distribution outcomes where if you get a reflationary environment, the break-evens are already pricing that in, but the nominal rates are not. So you should have a pickup, significant pickup in nominal rates um, under, you know, a clean sweep under Biden. If you get a split Congress under either one of them or a Trump win, um, then uh, break-evens are going to likely trend lower, which means that the whole, the equity move that's been on the back of 
lower break evens and lower or higher break evens and lower real rates is likely going to unwind. So we're looking at trades that that benefit um, like this, like for example, uh, tips um, that benefit sort of under the distribution of outcomes. I think I mentioned to you offline that we're starting to get more interested in energy. I think the supply demand dynamics as we progress through next year are going to be phenomenal for, for energy um, or not phenomenal, but clearly much better than what's currently being priced in. Um, so to sort of parlay, call it gold miners, which would be very reflationary under, um, under say a Biden sweep would be unbelievably positive for gold miners uh, and to call in the short term, but some would say negative for energy, I think probably flat to potentially positive for energy. Um, so you could pair, for example, energy with, with gold miners, um, a Trump win energy is clearly going to go higher. Um, Biden win, then gold miners likely go higher and you potentially win on gold miners under Trump as well. Um, so that's sort of something interesting to us is also, and maybe just getting off topic or a little bit on energy. Um, I think that, the the amount of capex that's that's happened uh amongst a lot of these exploration um companies relative to their assets is incredibly low incredibly low one of the lowest levels that we've seen historically and if you look back that typically leads crude returns by two years and is in currently indicating that the four returns for crude are, are quite positive now i think in the short term crude's likely going to unwind if we get um if we get this move in the dollar that I'm sort of looking for, but thinking about next year and beyond, I think the, the energy space is probably going to be one of the best performing sectors. Um, after we get through this little, this little, this, the, the election and the end of the year and this little liquidity pocket, but back to your initial question, I think what you really need to think about is, is how do you structure a portfolio and think about the world that wins under both, uh, under both scenarios. And then, after you have, you know, tread lightly going into it, and after you have some more clarity, you have the ability to, you know, size up or size down. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think for those listening who are just kind of, I mean, the listeners absolutely vary from 22-year-olds who are just, you know, going first into um, their careers to other hedge fund managers. So you've got a huge variety of people listening. For those who are just not that experienced, like, think twice if you're really going to trade this election. Like a lot of people get really hurt <laughs> with, um, with stuff like this. Um, and because, mainly because emotion comes into it, um, their own emotions. And, um, you know, generally if you're too emotional in trading, it's not good. But if you want to have a stab, there are some good ideas there. The way I've been thinking through it was, I think the Biden sweet one is just really obvious that you're going to get dollar down and the most obvious trade that gets rid of the whole tax issue is, is gold going up in that scenario. Um, because if corporate taxes are, I mean, we don't really know how the market's going to react to the fact that you will get stimulus in a DDD scenario, but he also will get rid of the Trump tax cuts. And how that's going to balance is, frankly, anyone's guess. Um, and then... Yeah, and I, I think yeah. one other quick point is just on the capital gains. Um, you have a scenario where, you know, they're going to go... From, call it from 20 to 40 percent um a scenario where you have a lot a huge amount of gains in a lot of these tech companies this year also you know long-term holders are, are now mm. 
looking at potentially 20 to 40 percent you know that's a that's a that's a 20 percent haircut in your holding um so you could have sort of a forced selling event um under under uh under biden win or you know in a biden sweep which i don't think that many people are sort of appreciating um so that could also cause some that could cause some um some havoc um which i I think would cause breakings to go lower right i guess just the issue with stocks on all these scenarios is they they just have kind of more almost inputs uh and i think it's just harder to know what's going to happen um in like in your other scenarios when in effect you don't have a sweep i mean i think a republican sweep is pretty much impossible um for them to win the house i mean maybe it can happen but um but any scenario where there's no overall control uh and you you and if trump's president then you're probably going to get a real big increase in us dollar um and um and probably long duration well long duration bonds could do really well then um, if there's really yeah. just no stimulus. So the way I've looked at it was you've got, and, and if listeners think back to my last podcast with Jason Buck on volatility, you've got to think about where there's kind of convexity. So for example, I'm set up with long gold options. I do still have that trade I talked about in the last podcast, which was um, a straddle on gold just for volatility. But in effect, I've got long gold options and then long USD calls and some long duration calls Meaning that if any either one of those really flies, the convexity is going to absolutely outweigh the loss you're going to get on the other side. Um, and I've just taken stocks out of it because um, I think a lot of people have found this year just so hard to <laughs> trade stocks. Um, even though, of course, everyone on Twitter is a billionaire and knows how to do it. So, um, so yeah, exactly. And I, I think I think it's probably better just to not trade it at all and put look for things that like you were looking at where because no one has an edge and it's very difficult to have an edge in calling the outcome of the election. And it's even more difficult, you know, for example, last year or 2016, when the market initially, you know, it was very bearish. Uh, if Trump was elected, the market initially sold off five points and then went the exact opposite way. So, you know, given, you know, positioning and how, you know, is it already priced in? There's a lot of different variables where trading an, an individual event probably is not not the best thing to do. More so, think about potential big payouts with small losses, like you like you are, um, and sort of getting out of the way and wait for things to settle, and then yeah, have exactly. bring your edge back into the game. So, look, guys, if you want to hold fifty percent cash, if you're in your PA, say that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that for like a, a few weeks. Um, you know, it might be more than a few weeks. We don't know, so, <laughs> um, but we won't get we won't get into that one here. Um, okay, so what, if we move on from that to, I mean, there's a ton of talk on inflation, deflation, and a lot of that in the short term is really, I think the narrative is very sur- surrounding what stimulus is coming or not, and um, and how big is it. I, I'm not so sure the market cares that much about when it comes because it seems because i think it will just look through and think forward um but i mean you know if there's there's going to be a very big difference on inflation expectations if there's you know five trillion of stimulus versus 500 billion um but how are you thinking kind of on that debate inflation deflation in the kind of medium to longer term um you know kind of getting into more of the um 
well, basically monetary and fiscal dynamics. So. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting uh, debate, and there's so many different you know definitions of inflation. Um, I think the one that everyone needs to pay attention to is basically what the break-evens market does. So the bonds are priced off of you know growth and inflation, and that inflation rate is what break-evens are trading at. So when I think about inflation and think about that market, I primarily think about primarily think about commodities. Um, so as opposed to you know majority of everyone else is talking about you know call it the CPI um, and inflation that the the Fed sort of paying attention to, but with a lot of the markets and things that I'm looking at, the end of the day, whatever the commodities do, you know, the, the, the correlation between commodities and break-evens is, is incredibly attractive or very high. Um, so ultimately what commodities do will, will dictate what the inflation rate is um, or what the market's perceived inflation rate is. So I can envision a scenario where, I mean, you know, the backdrop for persistent, uh, inflation is very, is not very high. Um, now based on d demographics, based on growth, based on current debt profiles, but under the assumption that, and I, and I can see this happening that the dollar moves lower for multiple years, what's that going to do to commodities? It's clearly going to raise commodities, which in turn will raise break-even prices, which will be inflationary for the markets and how the markets trade and how, you know, tech multiples get rated, how uh, the S&P, S&P's multiple gets rated. So I think it really is contingent on where the dollar goes. And so short term, I think the dollar, like I was talking about before, likely goes higher. But over the long term, I think the return profiles of the U.S. relative to the rest of the world are very, are, are very poor which ultimately leads to a negative dollar bias. And if you have a negative dollar bias, um, then that likely means a positive commodity bias, which means a positive break-even bias uh, or the market's you know, perceived inflation view. Um, so I could see a scenario where we actually do get some type of inflation via a lower dollar, but not you know, demand growth inflation from like for example, right now, uh, the break-even market is 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 gone significantly higher, but demand is still very poor. So that's why nominals are trading where they are, but inflation expectations are much higher. So if you have a scenario where this is persistent over time, then you're likely going to have a higher rate of inflation. But from a demand CPI perspective, uh, I, I don't think you're going to have a unless you have can, which is possible and something that you I think needs to be evaluated persistent policy uh, stimulus packages over time um, I, I don't think that you are which is which is growing by the day the probabilities of that um, I don't think that you were likely to have significant inflation within the real economy um, but you could have inflation via the markets if that makes sense yeah no and the that whole logic on the dollar and commodities I've, I've used before on, on, on this show because it's it's a it's not like a rocket science argument but it's it surprised me how few people use it um and um 
and it doesn't matter about what's because some people get a bit sidetracked they think it's about what's being imported into the us well it, it's not it's just if every commodity is more expensive in dollars everything's going to cost more um it's pretty right. pretty simple um so but on that tips thing so what's interesting is there's been a little bit of chat it's not a huge amount but that this has just really been distorted by the fed because they had very few tips on their balance sheet until this year and they're now i think owning at least 20 percent of the market i can't remember the exact number but it, but it's really but the rate of change yeah, of their right. of their holding of tips especially has been has been going up a lot um and um and so it's very hard to know, you know, to disentangle that with, you know, what's the real market signal on that one? So. No, I totally agree. I think they've had a huge influence in the market, probably not the whole influence. I think um, the dollar and some of the commodities, but but the break. I think one of the things that I admit right now, given our current information, is that the break even market to me does not make sense in terms of where it's currently be currently being priced. Um, which is likely a result of the Fed and them buying 19 to 20% of the tips market, uh, as well as a lot of these supply short shortages of commodities, such as copper, such as lumber previously, that's sort of been, um, you know, uh, a lot of more supplies come on recently, which is why lumber prices have gotten crushed. But you had COVID effectively created the largest four month demand for autos and houses therefore commodities with the dollar getting crushed at the same time that you had a generational supply shock where five to six percent of the copper uh, supply came offline same thing with lumber you had wildfires out west that caused lumber supplies to be depleted even more so you had this sort of this unbelievable supply side shock at the same time you had an unbelievable demand shock um as people, you know, people reopened, they didn't buy an auto for the past two months and then they're buying it. The dealer said, look, we don't have any inventory. We need to overorder in case we shut down again. And then you have the Fed coming in and buying 20% um, of the tips market. So that whole, that whole equation uh, made the real rates just go straight down, um, primarily because the break-evens. And looking forward, you know, that demand piece starts to fade. Um, because you're not going to order get a car twice. And once you move out of the city, you're not going to move out again. Um, and the Fed, uh, based on the Ford tips issuance schedule and how much they're buying, that's actually going to start, instead of increasing, that's going to start fading out. So while they'll still have a very large uh, effect on the market, it will be, the relative rate of change will, will be less. Um, so I think to your initial point, there is definitely some, I mean, their, their footprint is clearly in, in the tips market. Um, but going forward, I think some of these dynamics and ultimately what, what where the dollar goes will, will probably dictate where the, the next move in real rates is. Yeah, that makes sense. And so we, 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 you pretty much got to where I wanted to go next anyway before, which was um, sort of teetering at the door of MMT i.e. if we have continuous stimulus that becomes, you know, let's just imagine a, uh, a political environment where continuous stimulus can happen. The Federal Reserve Act may even get changed, although I could argue, does it really need to? Because they don't really care what's written in it now anyway, but it's kind of a moot point. Uh, if it needs to be changed, it will be changed. Um, and 
it seems pretty clear to me now that central bank digital currencies, you know, the train's leaving the station. I mean, in China just this week, they actually just signed it into law, like literally into law that the digital currency um, is an official currency of China. So they're a lot, they're a lot further ahead than others. But whether it's Australia, ECB, UK, I think the Fed's probably slightly further behind, but you know, a lot of um, major countries and supranational groups like the Euro are looking at this. And, you know, it, it, they could just circumvent the entire process you originally talked about, you know, about the Treasury selling bonds to basically primary dealers and the Fed buying them off them. And like, I mean, if this happened, do you subscribe to the kind of Lacey Hunt view that if that did happen, then literally everything just suddenly changes and we have to rethink, in effect, our whole portfolio? Um, or do you think it's kind of not quite that dramatic? So. Yeah, no, I think so. I think it's, it, I think you definitely, yeah. I think if, I think we're, the probabilities of that scenario are increasing, especially if we don't get, you know, maybe not necessarily this cycle, uh, if we do get a, 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 an economic pickup, but the next downturn, that's clearly going to be on the table, some type of idea behind that. Um, and if you have, if, you know, if they're able just to hand out money, then, you know, rates are going to go through the roof. And it's going to be an interesting, it will, it will, it, it will be an interesting uh, interplay between higher rates, handing out money, uh, drive, forcing growth to slow, um, therefore they hand out more money. But that, if that does happen, it's very clear you're going to want to own commodities and hard assets and crypto relative to financial assets, um, which is an, an unbelievably clear like one of probably the most clear macro trades and ideas under the assumption that that happens because they're going to be pulling capital out of the markets to fund all this. Um, like I talked about a little bit previously, um, which then causes rates to rise, which then re-rates a lot of that 70% of the equity market. That's basically priced for deflation and no growth. Um, it just creates a very, very positive backdrop for commodities relative to financial assets you know i agree on the absolutely agree on the hard asset angle there so for listeners who are new if you if you want to learn more on that i did a whole hour on i think it's called framework for the 2020s it was basically a, a show on if the above happens what would be the assets and how to think through which hard assets um, in terms of the liquidity of them and we had a little framework for that so if you're interested listener, please go and see that. Um, I wanted to ask a slightly more tongue-in-cheek question because um, you love your two-axis Y charts. Sorry, two oh, Y-axis yeah. charts. And I've been known here and there uh, to get a little frustrated by some of these, uh, not your ones, well, not necessarily your ones, but, but the two basically the, the prevalence of two Y-axis chart crimes on Twitter is high. Um, and... And if you actually grab a bunch of the data, you can on, say my charts. That's okay. Uh, I have I haven't got the underlying data on <laughs> one, so I haven't been able to compute the R squared. But for some charts, I had the data that people did, and I and I worked out the R squareds. So when you actually look at the correlation mathematically, and they're horrendous. It, it's just what they've done is they've, you know, they've they've choose, chosen the starting period and the end period and the axes to just vaguely fit these things on top of each other. Um, right. And so I was wondering, like. 
how what's your process for like because a lot of your ones are quite different too they're not obvious ones and a lot of them use your own proprietary indicators so by definition they can't be um kind of you know, used elsewhere but why do you have confidence in yours how did you develop them yeah i think it's a, i think it's an interesting i think it's thing. a good yeah i think it's a really good question um i think what you know so if you look at a lot of our charts and how we use them which i guess gets which people looking at necessarily wouldn't understand at the end of the day I, I i'm not trying to be um an economist and say look this is precisely the level in which we think um you know the, the break-evens market is going to hit more uh, there, there are certain things that 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 makes sense for but in relation to the leading indicators what i'm looking for is more of the direction and the rough timing of that direction so i'm never going a lot of you know, what we're trading and what we do is based off of the technical work. So um, if the market's saying something that's not agreeing with, with our viewpoint, then we're probably going to be chopping out of it or, or reevaluating our thesis. But if, for example, you know, our, our growth indicators are turning higher next year, I'm less worried about what that means for the exact number of the PMI, more so for the direction of the PMI. So if I know that look, the, the indicator is turning higher and we're going to go higher for the next call it nine months. This is not what I'm saying, but just as an example, um, therefore I need to think about the backdrop for the, for the trading to correspond to, to sort of that view versus look, I'm going to you know buy crude oil because the, the lean says it's going to um, go to $60 a barrel. It's more for directional and understanding where the rate of change is versus the precision of, of nailing something exactly. Um, so, you know, a lot of the things that we've developed have been over you know, seven years of doing this where, like I mentioned, I started off on the equity side of the things and in order to have an edge as an equity analyst, you need to be able to look into the future and discount what the cash flows are of, the, of a company to figure out what, the, what it's worth today. So, Doing so, I just became obsessed with lead lag relationships and building a lot of these lead indicators. Um, and, you know, now I have a host of long, call it 12 to 18 months, uh, short one to three months, and then this real-time PMI indicator, which is a daily, you know, understanding of where global growth sits based on the internals of global markets. That gives us a probabilistic idea of where we are in the growth cycle um, and where things are going to be over the next six, nine, 12 months. Um, so it's less, I think it's a good point that you make though. You know, a lot of people are doing dual axes and, and, and trying to, you know, say a oh, PMI is going to be, you know, a 60 or central bank. Uh, like they've like, like the PMI says that the, the, uh, the PMI says that rates should be at 2%. You know, there's not a lot of like thought process that goes behind some of the dual axis charts where, you know, the PMI is a diffusion index. Like, of course, it's not like if, if you have the worst scenario in the world where everything is shut and then everything opens, it's the percentage of respondents that say it's better. So, of course, it's going to be better. So, of course, it's going to go up a lot. That doesn't mean that economic growth is back to baseline and rates should be 2%. You know, so it's the the you have to really think about what's going into the chart and then what you're trying to get out of it um are you looking directionally 
for something, which is basically what we're doing? Or are you looking to be precise in, in a number, which I, which is, is extremely difficult with a lot of the, the lead, uh, a lot of the, with a lot of these charts, but it gives you an idea of roughly vicinities where you could expect, you know, forward things to move, which then say, you say, okay, well, what are the markets saying? How does that, how does that comport with, with what I'm seeing and, and some of the work, that type of thing. Right, and I, I wanted to talk about PMIs too, so kind of set it up. Um, so I, I've been on a long, about the last year, anyone that's been following me on Twitter knows I, um, I like to help people understand what a PMI is, and to your point, it's diffusion index. It's in effect a rate of change. It's not an absolute number. And so I was kind of thinking, I mean, Whenever the, the lows were, probably in the US, it was what, April? Um, I was actually thinking, well, wait a minute, Would, shouldn't these things be hitting 70 or 80? Like, how right. on earth could it only be like in the mid 50s? It, it just seemed odd. Like, if it, I guess my point was that they seem to get the down really good. Like, the first month that's super down, when the PMIs were down in the 20s or the teens in Europe. But then the next month, it was very hard to see how businesses wouldn't be saying things are better when like the economy was clearly more open. Um, but nothing, even in China, nothing really rebounded into the, even into the sixties. Um, I was wondering if there's, uh, is that just my kind of my understanding being a bit wrong or? Um, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think it also, it also relates to just the, the backdrop being, you know, still very, very poor. Um, you know, in China, they just went positive on their retail sales. I mean, they, they were apparently taking care of the virus multiple months ago, right? And they went, you know, last month was three, spot three up on retail sales after being down, I think, the month before. You know, like the, the backdrop is still nowhere near what it was pre-COVID and oh, it's going to take a while were, to get back there. They were 8 10%. I mean, retail sales in China's Right, consistently, gigantic. right? <laughs> yeah, so, very consistently. Yeah. yeah. So the so I think your your reasoning there and your thought process is is right where if if everyone reopened and we're back to normal, it should be 100, right? Or close to 100, or very very high, but it never hit now if you understand the index and you and you understand how it's calculated and it works like you do then that makes a lot more sense. Uh, it makes sense why you're not seeing those numbers because the backdrop is also sort of poor. But if you know you don't necessarily understand it, you're like, oh, rate should be three percent, and it, it's just it's, it's just just no. There's it's just a really I don't I think that's sort of dangerous. Um, so that'd be a I think that would be a chart crime, that chart. Yeah, chart crimes. So basically, people, if you're putting rate of change or diffusion indices on something that's not a rate of change, then it's kind of you, you, you're literally you're comparing mathematical apples and oranges. Um, yes. And, and just it, because it, something goes it, it, two lines go on top of each other, it doesn't mean they actually um, they can correlate without having a real causation. So um, I, I'd like to see more kind of discussion on that on FinTwit, like what's the really causations of these things, not just correlations. Yeah. If you're looking and you know, maybe if you're looking directionally, but from a magnitude perspective, like rates are not going to 3% tomorrow. Like uh, it's, I don't know. 
I think you know maybe I, I maybe think you're probably I think with. you're probably right on that one. So. Yeah. <laughs> Unless like Jay Powell literally goes crazy. So um so we talk about PMIs, but like and and they're freely available for you know for you know, the, the the main ones, whether it be ISM in US or market around the world. But there's a lot of data out there. So and I'm sure you're plugged into Bloomberg, but a lot of people aren't. Um, and they don't want to play that 20, 30 grand or whatever it is. Um, what kind of, what are the interesting, some of the interesting data sources that, that you see that like a retail investor could, could, could look at? Um, I mean, I always tell people to go to trading economics or, or investing.com. They both have a calendar. And I'm surprised how many people don't even know about those. And that will get you all the yeah. pretty high level macro data for most countries. But, but, you know, real-time data has become this super interesting thing recently. Um, and, um, yeah, how do you kind of think through that? Yeah, it's a good question. I might not be the best guy to ask because I'm just so plugged into the Bloomberg um, and get most of most of the stuff from Bloomberg. But I've heard that Y charts is also um, both affordable and and um, and good. I like to and one of you know this is not maybe for a retail investor, but what's something that we're developing and looking into is is really working and and finding a lot of this alternative data and web scraping. So yeah. Um, different data sources that not everyone has that could potentially give you an edge. Um, but on the data front, most of the data I get is, is primarily from Bloomberg plugged into Excel or plugged into um, some of the, the, the programs that we're building. Um, I, from a trading perspective, though, sort of outside data, though, I, I, I like stock charts. I like uh, TradingView, uh, very much like TradingView. Um, but most of most of most of what we do is primarily in Bloomberg. Yeah, no, TradingView is great, and and it's um, well, actually, you can use it for free. It it, it gets a little annoying with the ads, <laughs> and and there's some functionality you can't do, but but for a pretty small amount per month, you can get rid of all the annoying things for for a few bucks a month. Um, and so I wanted to think about one other thing. So well, a couple of things, but one was. I kind of got the impression that, you know, 2021, you think we, we could, well, we should probably see signs of recovery, although it's kind of tricky to know. Um, you know, someone like Raul has been quite vocal on thinking it's going to be a double dip um, because of it, basically a wave of insolvencies. And I'm seeing more articles now online, like creditors getting a few cents in the dollar in insolvencies versus what you'd normally get, which might be 40, 50 cents. And um, I'm just wondering if, you know, do you think that, you know, especially with, you know, a vaccine will come, but even if it came tomorrow, it's going to take time to give to 8 billion people. Um, and we don't know how effective it will be. If Trump loses, I suspect he'll be the world's biggest anti-vaxxer the day after. Um, so that could be really, really, really tricky for us. Uh, I mean, Europe doesn't have a problem with anti-vax. Um, so what, what do you think the kind of risks are of that kind of, because a, a double dip, like in the 80s, right? In the 80s, it's kind of, it's pretty brutal. Um, and the economy is so fragile as, as it is. Or maybe this just means it's just a shoo-in for MMT. So. Yeah, no, I, well, I guess I'm sort of on the same page uh, in the short term. I think under the assumption that that scenario plays out, I think that would be a buying opportunity, uh, especially for the rest of the world. So <clears throat> things that aren't necessarily 
um, that are, are tied to the dollar, but not, not necessarily U.S. growth. Um, you know, the next few months, I think, right now the markets are not pricing in any negative downside scenario. Um, the, other than the bond market, the bond market nominal rates are are marginally off the low. So, you know, they're, they're, and it's, it's clear, it's, it's, it's been by far our best asset class and, and where we make most of our money is, is the bond market because it actually corresponds to sort of what's going on in the world. Um, but I think, you know, the near term, I think you have a lot of downside risk that then potentially creates a, one of the things that that would do is it would cause the Fed to increase their purchases of treasury. So that would, improve the negative liquidity dynamic that I've been talking about, but that, that, that works with a lag. So if they started call it January one, that probably wouldn't come through till mid April. So um, there is a, I don't think the markets are pricing in this downside scenario or potential for, you know, call it a, a default wave or, or whatnot, but under, under the assumption that that happens and equity prices do move lower, I think that one, you're going to see, yeah, I guess it's also sort of contingent on who wins the election, right? You're going to see if, if you have a split Congress and there's problems, then that's going to be very bad. But if you have, you know, people willing to come together um, or a sweep, any downside move is likely going to result in another big stimulus package, which should be able to fill the demand void for until these leading indicators and the economy starts to pick back up. But again, I don't think in the U S primarily, I don't think that, I think the, the, these, I don't think any of the equity prices are pricing that at all. Um, other than call it, you know, the, the sectors of the, the, the industries that have just been absolutely annihilated by COVID, but headline equity indices tech, tech is not pricing in either deflation or reflation. Uh, it's been pricing in basically that, that sweet spot middle where break-evens rise and, and growth sort of stays low and everyone piles into it. So I, it, it just seems to me that this, this positioning needs to be shaken out before you can actually have sort of a true bottom um, and persistent move, maybe not. Um, but I think if you see any any large scale weakness, call it more than 15 to 20 points, I think that's going to be a buying opportunity primarily for emerging markets, um, commodities, and sort of the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, and so kind of final thing, like, so as I said, a lot of people listening are in their uh, 20s and they're just about to start on their career. And a lot of them are interested in macro. And they want to try and get into the industry. And I don't necessarily mean work at a hedge fund. I mean, there's lots of ways one can get into, you know, basically earn a living with macro these days. What kind of advice would, would you give them? I mean, you've started your own business. It's hard, but it's hugely rewarding. It's also, as we talked about before, like doing having to do four jobs at once or, or even more than that. Um, so, you know, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And, and for me, it was, you know, I didn't come from a feeder school. I played soccer at the University of Vermont, which they call public Ivy, but it's no, you know, it's no Harvard. Um, so typically a lot of these, these programs you need to have come from a feeder school that feeds you into a two-year banking program. You know, outside of that, it's very difficult. Um, so I had to find 
you know, different ways and get creative in terms of how I broke into the industry. So one, I think you just, you need to be, you need to actually believe that you love it because if you don't love it, then there's going to be someone else that is in the industry that loves it, that, you know, is, is going to outwork you and, and outthink you. So from the beginning, if you're just trying to get into the industry to get rich, like that's, that's, that's exactly the wrong motive um, that you want to have. If you actually truly love the game, then over time, I think you will, you'll find yourself in a seat that, that is rewarding. Um, but you've got to learn, you've got to constantly, you got to have an edge. You have to, you have to think differently from you know, what, you know, what the consensus is, what people are thinking about, um, what they're learning. So for example, you know, everything I learned in school about value investing and, and classic finance is completely useless, like hundred percent useless, uh, not even worth even taking. I'd rather take a philosophy um, course than some of these, this corporate, you know, corporate finance stuff. Um, so you, I think you have to really love it. I mean, it, at the end of the day, if you do, uh, then you'll, you'll, you'll end up at a spot that you, where you deserve to be. But if you don't, then you're not there for the right reasons and it's not going to go well. Um, and you're not going to be able to progress or, or sort of move forward. So I think you just need to think about how to, if you want, if you, if you're in a school that is a very good school, um, you have a better chance of making into one of these programs. That's good. Although, you know, I think the industry is probably transitioning away from, from, um, I guess this relates more to the hedge hedge fund space. Um, but yeah, no, I think, it, it, I think the industry is, is, is transitioning and it is difficult to, to get into the macro or uh, hedge fund space because it's become so competitive. There's so many funds. Um, so you need to think creatively about how can I sort of differentiate myself and take a different route or is, is it a waiting game where, you know, I have to make you know, one step back to take two steps forward type of thing. Um, but it's definitely not going to be easy. And it's definitely, it's still not easy for me. Um, you know, uh, coming from a different background and, and, um, making an industry and then being able to stay around in the industry and, 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 and grow your business. Um, you know, it's a, it's a grind, but I love it every day. You know, I'm in the office at six, six thirty in the morning and probably leave at seven at night, go home, have, go to my, my Bloomberg in my, uh, in my apartment, the home office and then do some more work. So if it doesn't feel like work for you, then it's, then it's probably the right thing to do. If not, then you want to try to find something that you do love because this is a Steve Jobs quote. The only way to do great work is to love what you do. Um, so I think that's, that's important with, with anything that you do. I think that's great advice. And um, to build on that, I had someone DM me the other day and they were, they, basically their parents had told them that if they want to get into this space, surely they must have to do an economics degree. And I kind of said to them, well, it might be like the last thing you want to do. Like <laughs> you might want to consider doing like maths or physics, or as you said, philosophy or, or something that gives you, um, I think anything numeric is probably quite helpful in, in today's world. Um, so um, yeah, don't always do the obvious thing. So. Cool. Yeah. And every, everyone that I'm, I'm hiring or working with came from, but it's a much different background than uh, has something about them that I like, um, but also a much different background from, you know, a classic 
Wall Street hedge fund guy. Um, I, I much prefer someone that's open-minded and does not have a pre-set uh, sort of notion for how things work, um, which you'll find if someone comes out of business school or, you know, works at a, a hedge fund for long enough, um, but more where you can, you know, shape them and teach them this is sort of how we think and how we view the world. Cool. All right. So how can people find out more about, um, about Pravalli Global? So. Yeah. You, uh, you can go to our website, uh, PravalliGlobal.com. You can uh, DM me on Twitter. Um, you can see me on Twitter at Teddy Valley, T-E-D-D-Y-V-A-L-L-E-E. Um, you can shoot at me an email. Um, so in any one of those options. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. We covered a lot. <laughs> and um, as always, guys, if you're listening and um, if you have any feedback, please send me a DM on Twitter. Um, and I, I never ask, but if you do enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on whatever service you use. And I'm not going to tell you to give a five-star review, just review it how you think it should be. Um, and that will be much appreciated. So Teddy, thanks again. Love to get you on again someday and um yeah great thank you let's hope we survive the rest of 2020 absolutely and may 2021 be better and it exactly good luck out there <laughs>